Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast that's really sort of three podcasts in one. I'm going to talk about COVID-19 and the impact that it's had on the Premier League and world football in general. And really that's going to sort of neatly segue into a discussion about whether the Premier League formation in 1992 was revolutionary. And that's then going to really bleed into a discussion onto the Premier League Hall of Fame. Now, I suppose at its surface, it looks like three completely separate topics all sort of mishmashed together. But really, what we're talking about with football right now is just nothing's happening outside of the you know Belarusian Premier League and a couple of other places sort of dotted around the globe. You, you have a complete stop. There's no internationals, there's no women's football, there's no domestic football, there's no local football, there's no grassroots, no youth, just just nothing. And as a result, there's a vacuum created and people start looking for answers. And there's a lot of talk going around that things will, will never be the same again. And really, if you look at history when sports have stopped... And this is really mostly you're talking about the end of the First World War and the end of the Second World War and a couple other occurrences. But those are the two major examples. And it was dislocating. It was profound. It was difficult, you know, whether to keep football going, whether to, you know, whether that was a drain on you know, resources and manpower and all the rest of it, whether it was a positive thing to keep football going, to take people's mind off the, you know, the struggles of the war, all of those other bits and pieces. And yet when you look at it, as soon as you know the fighting stops, the football goes back to normal pretty quickly. You know, it's still four divisions, it's still, you know, two points for a win, one for a draw, if divisions one, two, three, yeah, you know, that kind of thing. It very rarely rarely could you say that there is a an example where it, it fomented a you know a, a fundamental change in the way how the sport was run, and I think this is what's going to happen with football. There will be some differences, but just as how easily we've all really managed to go from you know being able to go to the shops whenever we want, going out you know, to restaurants, to pubs, to cinemas, you know, to have freedom of movement. Lots of people have adjusted very quickly. And that adjustment will then, you know, be replicated when we're all able to go out again. The thing is, is that it's not a zero-sum game. And some people are talking about it as if it is. As if the primary people that are going to be struggling is the lower leagues. This is a crisis that is affecting a 5th, 6th, 7th division semi-pro team. As in the same way as Barcelona. Neither outfit is able to play. Stafford Rangers cannot play. Neither can Barcelona. Yes, the problems are different. But the impact is the same. You have a situation where Barcelona's wage structure is enormous. It is an enormous wage bill. It is a huge drain on their expenditure. And they are not getting any money in. Now with your 6th, 7th division team... There is no money coming in, keeping it running and all the rest of it. Yes, they're both difficult situations. Yes, Barcelona are far better positioned to survive than you know Stafford Rangers, for example. But it's still the same problems. It, it's not an issue of haves and have-nots. 
you know, the Premier League is you know, having difficulties just in the same way as you know, the conferences. You know, the broadcasters are hurting. It's not they're not benefiting from it. The leagues, the clubs, the fans, players, all across the world. This isn't a an issue that is unaffecting, you know, you know, Latin America. It's affecting us, it's affecting Europe. There is no one really winning from this as such. The thing is, when you're talking about things like the wages to turnover ratio across all football, the thing is, is that, yes, there is an element that it is perilous. And that, you know, income you know, flows, what was really what was keeping football running. But it's not as if this issue hasn't been aware. People have been trying to legislate, you know, administrators, the government. People have been trying to deal with this issue for a while. You know, you've had the ITV digital meltdown in the early 2000s. You had the problems in Germany in the mid-2000s. The thing is, even when, and I've talked about this before, even when you try and legislate, there will then be people trying to do end-around. There will be people trying to find loopholes. You know, football as a industry, not as a sport, as an industry, has a problem. Fundamentally, it's that it is highly competitive. And really, the only long-term way that you know people found to get success is to spend more money on players and as a result that is what what takes up such a huge amount of the turnover and that's how you can rapidly improve and that is again the same in the premier league as it is in division six and that's really why we've had you know fair play rules in both the lower and higher leagues to try and put football on a surer financial footing. And generally speaking, from what we've seen so far, and this is only the first few years where this has been mandated, it's broadly speaking work. Yes, you've had some, you've had the Berry nightmare, to a lesser extent you've had Bolton, but, and again, not to make, you know, sweeping predictions, I felt that teams were, you know, in the lower leagues were far more moving towards sustainability rather than recklessness and the the teams that were struggling so your berries and your boltons for example the situation there was is that there was an ex there was an understanding that there was problems however these problems were so deep rooted had been going on for so long that it wasn't simply a case that you could you know quickly do a u-turn or just let some contracts run out and eventually you'd be back on an even keel Bolton Wanderers Football Club at the moment really is a battleship that is turning around and it will take an extended period of time before it is finally heading in the right direction. But there is an, an understanding that people know where that right direction is and that you know they are trying to build a sustainable future. You know, it's easy to to you know really to say that to attribute the crisis as a turning point when football suddenly realised that you know there was an element of paycheck to paycheck kind of living in the lower leagues where there was literally small you know really just wafer thin margins for error. But for me, a lot of the groundwork has already been laid. I mean, really, is there any way that a football club could have planned for what has happened. Could anyone have said, okay, what will happen? You know, could let's say again, Stafford Rangers have sat there at any point 
and said, okay, what will happen if football got shut down for six months? What would we do? I mean, how much money could you possibly have put aside from that? How could you plan for it? Could you have written it into the contracts? Like, you know, with so much of the lower leagues, it is month to month, year to year. You know, the importance of things such as cup runs in keeping you going for 5, 10, 15 years. The point is that if governments, if major corporations who are far bigger, you know, who would have a department that would deal with things like risk, haven't really been able to cope. It is so fast moving. It's so open ended. You know, it's impacted virtually every part of ordinary life. You know, I'm hopeful that the better angels of our nature at club, administrative, and government level will allow for clubs at the bottom of the English football pyramid to survive and thrive. I really do. I hope that there is government money put into it. And we all, you know, every sector, every industry, every, so many jobs will need some form of money just to keep it going. Football is such a huge part of our culture and just a way of life that brings us all together. And Lord knows we need that right now. And when we're able to go outside and try and get back to regular life. But the point is, is that... This crisis should also underline the importance of us, the fans, and to a lesser extent the football media, that we can actually help survive you know, the, the lower parts of the pyramid ourselves. It's not difficult. You go to three or four games a year. Instead of sitting at home, you know, just following football at three o'clock, you know, looking at the scores, watching match of the day, go to your local team. That's what will keep them going if they have... 10,000, 15,000 more fans a season putting some money behind the bar, that will keep them going, not, you know, this sort of hand-to-mouth existence. We, you know, it is a sense that you get what you put in. If you want English football to have this wonderfully varying system where you have, you know, community clubs, where you have people putting money in to try and get clubs up the league, we all need to contribute to that. Even if that means, you know, going to some random football, even if it isn't very good football, even if the facilities aren't great. But to really show that commitment and love for the whole thing, not just going to the pub on a Sunday and watching, you know, another, you know, let's say Southampton West Brom, which isn't a, you know, mid-table, two mid-table teams going at it, nothing to play for, and it's a boring nil-nil, when you could be going to you know, Dorking Wanderers, where you could be going to... Hampton and Richmond Borough, those sort of teams, and watching a fantastic game of football. And, you know, to really, you know, lobby for a more equitable division of capital between haves and have-nots. You know, with these sort of arguments and debates on, you know, whether the Premier League could, you know, trickle down more money to the bottom end of the period, you know, contrast to the, you know, the foundation of the Premier League in the early 90s. I mean, one of the sort of common criticisms of the Premier League is that it, you know, seeks to marginalise pre-1992 football history. And that, you know, the formation of, of the league has revolutionised the game largely for the, for the worse. The thing is, is that... The way how I would see it is, is that I don't think that the Premier League, its broadcasters and the media, I don't think are sitting there deliberately trying to, you know 
cut off pre-1992 football history. I think the problem is, is, is that there's an element of convenience. With the Premier League in the early 90s, what you get is Sky. You get all-seater stadiums. You get so many different bits and pieces. You get foreign players entering the, the league. Is that it becomes a perfect turning point moment. It's so easy to in terms of categorization. I mean, all sports really have this. With baseball, you have Jackie Robinson breaking the color line in the mid forties. In the NFL, you have the the Super Bowl era, and when the American Football League and the National Football League, you know, when they became one entity, mm. and as a result, all the period behind that always seems to get coalesced into one. And it's seen as the past and, you know, in some ways seen as less sophisticated and more backward. Which I think is, is unfair, but especially when you're talking about football, let's say if you can compare it to sort of county cricket, there isn't so much history. There isn't so much of a desire for people to understand the English game as a whole. In other words, you might know your own club's history. You might know when they were founded and how they got to where they are now. It doesn't quite work in the same way in terms of the whole sport. You don't really know. I think the vast majority of football fans wouldn't know that in the first early part of the 20th century, up until sort of the post-40s, that Division Three was north and south and it wasn't. it was regional. People, I don't think, have that interest. I don't think people, football fans, have that. They don't really care when it went from two points for a win to three, when the maximum wage was abolished, and all those other bits and pieces. It's, I think a lot of football fans really deal with football history in almost in terms of four years. Ah, you have a World Cup every four years, so you have the you know, 50s, you have the great Brazilian teams, 66, you then have the great... Dutch teams of the 70s, the 80s you have Maradona, and that's how football is really, football history almost become montaged in that regards. <laughs> whereby if you compare it to cricket where you have wisdom, where you have everything is written down, and knowing you know, the situation with the gentlemen and the players and all the other bits and pieces is actually far more valuable to know in terms of actually having a true understanding of the game. Whereby in football, it's a far more of a here and now event. I would argue that the history of the formation of the Premier League is far more nuanced. It's not a revolution. It's far more of an evolution that sprung from the darkest moments in the English games that took place in the mid-1980s. The arguments for saying that the formation of the EPL was evolution. You would say, let's say, take um, the building of um, McDiarmid Park, which is St Johnston's home ground, in 1989. It was the first ever all-seat stadium that was built in the UK. Now, you'd already had Pitodry in Aberdeen and Highfield Road in Coventry were all-seat grounds. You'd had in the late 70s and the early 80s, you'd had the West End at Spurs, you'd had the East End at Chelsea, you've, all, you've had corporate boxes in Old Trafford since the late 60s. 
there was a sense that football clubs realised that the previous model of grounds and of, I suppose, even the culture was unsustainable. You know, the 80s was a era of declining attendances. You had the Millwall-Luton riot in 1985 that was televised. Commercial revenue started to become more important. You know, Spurs becomes a PLC under Irving Scholar. So, what you had was a diminishing of the status quo, bit by bit. You had... Heysel, you had the Bradford fire, you then had Hillsborough. All of these events sort of over three or four years underlined what people already realised. That the future you were going to need all seat stands. Maybe not fully all seat grounds. You would maybe have this I think probably what they were working to was the idea that you would have you know, the touchline stands would be all seat. You'd probably have, you know, niche sort of terracing behind the goals, you know, like the Cop, the, um, you know, North Bank at Highbury, those sort of spiritual communal areas of the ground that was just so vitally, critically important to the atmosphere. You know, there was a sense that poor facilities were driving people away, that the poor facilities were in many ways actively driving hooliganism and that you had heavy-handed policing that really it was just becoming a, a vicious circle but why this didn't become more pronounced is really the problem what, what you had is people were aware of the problems they were aware that some of these you know terraces were dingy some of these stands were old and crumbling and that you know there was you know a pro you know, societal issue that you know produced the anger and the social isolation and the economic conditions that pushed people towards you know things such as hooliganism but they didn't really have the economic ability to action it the point was is that the west end at spurs the east end at Chelsea, the Jack Hayward stand at Molyneux, almost bankrupted all three of those clubs. So the point is, yes, there might have been a you know will somewhere to redo the entire White Hart Lane, Stamford Bridge, Molyneux, to make these into sort of footballing palaces, but if one stand was going to nearly of, even with the economic bounty, the idea of, oh, having, you know, executive boxes having corporate facilities conferencing facilities in the 80s that wasn't some that wasn't a revenue stream that you could sit there and guarantee it was more illusory it wasn't something that immediately made those clubs particularly wealthy and actually the cost overruns was and these just the inability of these clubs they were small clubs they were less than a hundred employees a lot of it was yeah the back end side of it was archaic you know in terms of what sit um Irving Scholar found when he bought Tottenham was that it, the whole thing just almost was like a rundown family business from the thirties and this was well into the nineteen eighties and that's why it really took Hillsborough because then suddenly it became a major issue, a governmental issue. In other words, it wasn't something that you could, the clubs didn't really have the money 
or the wherewithal to bring all of their stadiums up to code. And that's why you needed the Taylor report. It needed to be something top-down, and there needed to be money given to these clubs to help them build their stadiums, to, so that they weren't basically walking death traps. And I think at this point, it's, you realise things such as Italian 90 had a, a larger impact than was recognised at the time. You had all the wonderful stadiums, the San Siro, the Deli Alpi, that was shown in Italia 90. And the fact that England's run to the semi-final really rebirthed a love for the game in the wider population. And so therefore, when you then had the situation of you know what football stadiums were like from post-Hillsborough to the start of the Premier League, it was a re- recognition that the poor facilities were driving away casual fans, middle-class fans, women, children, who had watched Italian 90, who had seen the great stadiums, and really wanted something similar You know, when they went to their local ground. And so it created a demand for improved facilities, and you then had the government money behind it, you had the FA support that would allow these clubs to actually finally give them the means to do what they had wanted to do previously, but had been held back. The point is, is if when you had all 92 football league clubs doing it, brilliant. What you couldn't have had previously was you know, 5, 10, 15 teams bring their stadiums up to code if it meant that everybody else was just spending their money on the team and the teams that had done the right thing would therefore be at a competitive disadvantage. Which really brings us to the, I suppose, the, the sort of critical question. Had the Division 1, had the top teams not broken away from the Football League, what would have been different? So had, had the Premier League never come into being, had it still, we still now living with four divisions, Football League, Division 1 being the top division. I would argue that what you're looking at would be is maybe the Division 1 would be larger. It might be still 22 teams or even 24 teams. And there might have been a more equitable share of the revenues. The point is, is that you would still have had Sky get involved. Sky would still have needed top division football. They didn't necessarily need divisions 2, 3 and 4 at that exact moment. What they were trying to sell and what they needed in terms of subscribers was the top division. What you would have then had is a situation where English teams who are now back in Europe would have been behind. They already were behind, they would have been a bit further behind. So the more, as I think, the 90s would have carried on... And the more obvious it would have seen that English clubs were behind. And if you have a situation where the German clubs, the Italian clubs, the Spanish clubs, even to an extent the French clubs, were outperforming English clubs and their top divisions were 20-20 and England's was 24, that's when people would have started to kick off and say that those extra fixtures was holding the division back. So I think you would have then had a move towards reform. So you would have ended up with a 20-team division. I think it's important to note that the idea was with the FA forming the Premier League was that they were going to you know, push the Premier League down to 18 to help improve the English national team. But that got dropped. And eventually the clubs you know, realised that 20 was the one that effectively 
you've got the most amount of money without you know a decline in the product and without overpaying overplaying the payers the players even and if you think of maybe that the share between the clubs would have been more equitable the driver in pushing more money towards the top end of the division 1 would have been english teams in europe the point was is that the further the england English teams were behind in Europe and how that would then impact on the national team there would have been a sense that more money needs to go to there than divisions 4, 3 and 2 and you would have still had that the you know I suppose the implicit threat that they could break away so I think more money would have eventually gone to the top end of the of division 1 anyway maybe not quite as much as the Premier League but it would still be going higher and higher. It would be trending in that direction anyway. And I think another key point is is that you know, the Football League system wasn't that archaic. You know, it still allowed English clubs to be dominant in Europe in the 70s and 80s. It wasn't as if suddenly by moving to the Premier League it led to a period of time where English teams were suddenly massively more successful in Europe. You know, it really, it was still only until really the mid-2000s, only maybe the last couple of years that you've had, you know, a period of where England, English teams have been performing regularly well at the upper end of the level. You could probably even argue that English teams were more consistently successful in Europe under the Football League model than they are the Premier League model. English football would have had to have mirrored the European leagues, you know, to maintain competitiveness, to try and gain competitive advantage, and to help the you know, the idea of the English national team, especially when you had the you know Euro ninety six on on the horizon with England hosting the tournament, which really asked the question of so what did the advent of the Premier League actually do? It expedited the process. So it put more money into the top flight quicker. And so it, it shortened the lead time. So whereby it had, in, had the Football League maintain control over all of the teams in the football pyramid, you know, in all 92 Football League clubs, you would have had a situation where Manchester United would have won the Champions League. But it wouldn't have been 1999. It would have been probably far more closer to being the mid-2000s. And you wouldn't have maybe had so many English teams do so well. You might have had one or two, you know, the real top end, but it wouldn't have been as as widespread. I don't think you'd have had Leeds. I don't think you'd have had Chelsea in the late 90s, early 2000s. Maybe it would have cut on some of the the foreign investment, but at that point, by the early 2000s, I still like to think English football and their clubs would have been attractive for foreign owners. Maybe because it was slightly cheaper than buying. Maybe a team from Serie A, a team from La Liga. But that's that's counterfactual history as such. But really, if you're looking at it, the Taylor Report and the introduction of Sky are more important than actually rebranding it as the Premier League. What the Premier League does is it puts a sheen 
on a profoundly traumatic era for English football. You had a situation where now suddenly you had a broadcast partner that was doing technological improvements. More cameras, more slow-mo, increased pre- and post-match coverage. It was the idea of immersive coverage. The idea that you had Monday night football being a huge deal. Sunday, you know, Super Sunday. Which really goes... Which was revolutionary in the sense that we were so used to football and television being five minutes before, quick chat with the guy in the studio, here's your teams, off you go to the, the commentator, and then five minutes afterwards just to, you know, speak maybe speak to the guy who got a hat-trick, go over a couple of things, and then you were off to the 10 o'clock news. It was the idea that football could be appointment viewing. And while there was obviously, you know, the first few years of English teams being back in European football, there was a gap. Obviously, you lose five, six years of being in the top end of you know, European football. There's going to be a gap. But what you have was is that there was so much positivity. You know, you had increased crowds. You had, you know, cranes around all the grounds. You had new stadiums, new grounds. You had the build-up to Euro 96. So basically, when the Premier League starts, you have... 13 foreign players dotted around. And those 13 players weren't you know, super... You know, they weren't household name players either. You suddenly then had an influx of foreign stars coming in. You know, Cantona, Rude Hullet. You know, in terms of you know, propitious timing, you then had... You know, the Premier League was immediately associated with the United Fergusonian dynasty. There was a sense that the gap was to the Serie A was narrowing in some ways. You then had England, you know, football was coming home. You then had an England team under Terry Venables play good football and nearly so close to getting through to the final at Wembley. But a lot of this groundwork had been laid over the previous years. I've almost described it as... It, almost like the glorious revolution, a sort of a bloodless coup. Because really, what you'd had is so much change had happened. Yes, you'd had you know the element, the cultural elements of Italian ninety. There was you know a lot of improvements in terms of the broadcasting with ITV and with the BBC. I'd almost describe the Premier League in in some ways almost like a, a constitutional monarchy. In other words, the Premier League was the pomp and the circumstance, you know, that kind of figurehead that everybody could sort of rally around. So you now have this sparkling top division with a different name, with, you know, you know with different badges on your sleeve, and the sense that you were going from the Football League to the Premier League, that it was run by the FA. There was all these really symbolic shifts that effectively, that no one was really angry about it. No one was you know, rallying against it. In other words, had you done it in 1989 or in 90, I think it would have been far more controversial, it would have been far more difficult. But because you'd had the 
Hillsborough, you'd had the Taylor Report, you had you know Sky entering the market from the sort of nineties, early nineties onwards. Is that it? Ninety by nineteen ninety two, and with everything that was that people were looking forward to, new stats, Euro ninety six. It was a natural progression that you needed a, a new start, and that the Premier League would be that you know symbolic moment that you had a brand new trophy, and so as a result, what you were doing is you were the violence, the disasters, the the crumbling infrastructure that really had threatened you know English football's place in wider society, in culture. In other words, if no one was turning up, if you know the attendances in the first division were dropping below twenty thousand on average, when you know England games weren't selling out, when it was, it seemed as if football was losing its position as the premi- as the main sport of the country. This was now suddenly relegated to that previous previous incarnation. Now you had a, a brand new start. And that the fans, the media, the players, the managers, the teams were all ready for that. There may have been grumbles about, you know, the cop becoming all seat, you know, the same with the North Bank. But, and I would say that the game as a whole was, the professional game was ready for that. To step away from such profound negativity and all of the baggage that have built up, in other words... You know, when you think of football stadium disasters in this country, you know, it was governmental neglect. It was people not bothering to check the safety certificates. It was the sense that the stadiums that have been used for years, you know, Victorian, Edwardian architecture, you know, it had been a these things had been a death trap. Not just for a few years, they had been a death trap for generations. And the role that had played in allowing, and even in some ways fomenting the anger that is at the heart of, you know, hooliganism and that kind of destruction and rage that was, you know, effectively taking over streets every, you know, every other Saturday. Mm. And while you could say, yes, it was, you know, being evolved out. That wasn't quite enough. By you know, there's a reason the Premier League starts in 1992, whereby a line needed to be drawn that allowed English football really to take a step away from that, from that era, and actually be allowed to to really start again, mm-hmm. without the historical baggage holding them back. Which now leads us to the position of the formation of a. Premier League Hall of Fame. So the Premier League has been going now, you know, nearly 30 years now. And and from what I've read, so my understanding is, is that they've decided that it's going to be a Hall of Fame. It's not going to be a physical bricks and mortar institution. Effectively, they're going to there was going to be two people that were going to be announced and they were going to be given effectively some kind of medal and it was going to be the Premier League's highest honor. So this part of this part of the podcast is really a a sister podcast to one I've done about why we have Hall of Fames. Now, the problem that you're going to have with the Premier League Hall of Fame 
is that it's not going to tell the story of English football. Now, the thing is, is that English football needed a fresh start in 1992. It needed to let the baggage of the past, of the back end of the 1980s, that needed to be let go. Never forgotten, but it needed to be let go. You needed a way that English football could have a start which you know, was designed on you know, footballing excellence, on you know, television, on fame, on great stadiums, on great players. And really where football became ubiquitous. In other words, football became the passion of Mondeo Man that Tony Blair was going after in the 97 election. Whereby in the 80s, and even to let a point the 70s, going to football was seen as being edgy. You know, ooh, look at the violence, look at the facilities, whereby by the time you get to, you know, present day, having a season ticket at Stamford Bridge it is common in the, in the middle and upper classes. And it's really the traditional working class base. Your Chelsea boys, who used to go in the 70s and 80s, who have now been largely you know, crowded by the day trippers, the tourists, the, you know, and Range Rover family, you know, wife, two kids, you know, sturry stockbroker belt. Mm. Take Coventry City and Southampton. Now, with Coventry City, they had, you know, basically 32, 33 years of unbroken Division One and Premier League membership. And it's an incredible achievement. There were so many last gasp, kind of you know, great survival moments where they just about made it to the next season. And yet, if you have a Premier League Hall of Fame, how does Coventry fit into it? So obviously since their relegation in sort of 2000, 2001, they've nowhere close to getting back. You know, they're still you know, hoping to get into the championship and they would not be favourites next season to go up. And even if they were to, you know, they are effectively, there's a lost generation we are talking about. And so as a result, how does Coventry City get mentioned? I mean, the, you know, the, for the most part of their sort of eight, nine, ten years in the Premier League, you know, they're a couple of years under Gordon's track and they kind of hit, hit mid-table. But that was their ceiling. They didn't get through to cup finals, cup semi-finals, nowhere near Europe. How would they be... You know, how would you put... You know, a lot of their players were league average at best. I mean, your two best candidates would be you know, Gary McAllister and Dion Dublin. But even then, effectively part of the... You know, what If you think of Gary McAllister, if you put, let's say, put him into the Hall of Fame, would it be more for the spell at Leeds, where obviously he was part of the team that won the Division 1 the year before it became the Premier League, and that couple of years at Liverpool where you know he was signed on a free transfer and they won the treble... With Dion Dublin, would it effectively his years at Coventry City and the actual reward then of moving to Aston Villa and then getting some England caps? So in other words, it's it doesn't quite hit the nut. I mean, eventually you'd end up in a situation where they just you'd have to almost put Matt Letizia in as being the poster child for 
every single football club that, you know, really fell by the wayside. So that's, you know, Coventry, Wimbledon, Ipswich, Norwich, QPR, even Southampton, the original Southampton. So when they had, you know, an extended period of time in the top division, where they were always the escape artists, which was a huge part of 90s football, having Coventry and Southampton always somehow making it. And so just because Matt Letizia didn't leave, he'd almost be like, effectively almost the symbol for in the, in the Hall of Fame for half the league, for half of its history. I mean, take the, the Norwich team of 92-93 under Mike Walker. They played some fantastic football. You know, they, they weren't a million miles away from winning the first Premier League. They fell away at the end. But as when it comes to Christmas, they were top. You know, broadly speaking, Norwich's history in the Premier League isn't much to write home about. You had Rob Green, he did quite well there. You had Dean Ashton. They played some lovely football at times, even this year, where they were you know bottom of the table. Not much money had been put in, and they were playing some lovely stuff, but just always falling a bit short. So the thing is, there isn't, again, a huge number of Norwich City players you would put into the Hall of Fame. But the problem is, is that not only did they finish third, the next year they you know went into the Euro into the UEFA Cup as it was called at the time. I beat Vitesse Arnhem, which is an achievement, decent Dutch team. They then played Bayern Munich and beat them away. They're the only English team to have beaten Bayern Munich away. They won two one, Jeremy Gloss scored a wonder volley against Oliver Kahn. And the point is is that if you take that team that had Okay, they weren't great for an extended period of time, but they had a great European run. They got narrowly knocked out in the next round, having beaten Bayern by Inter Milan. But okay, so who would you put in to that the Hall of Fame? Well, Rule Fox. No, I mean he's borderline Hall of Very Good, let alone Hall of Fame. You know, and even he, you know, parlayed that success at Norwich into going to. Newcastle and Spurs. You know, Chris Sutton, in, in that 92-93 season, I think he scored eight goals. And he then parlayed it into a move to Blackburn. I mean, even so if you take QPR, you'd have a situation where Les Ferdinand would be the one player that would get you know, brought into the Hall of Fame. But in the popular imagination... I think it'd be his Newcastle spell and Spurs spell that would be what he'd be remembered for rather than the couple of, you know, two or three great seasons he had at QPR before then. Because it was really when he went to Newcastle and Spurs that he got England recognition, you know, on a regular, semi-regular basis. And that's the thing. So by not having a museum, and this is one of the, the great things about the Baseball Hall of Fame, is that you, your plaque has a cap on it, and the idea is it's supposed to represent the team that you best represented. So naturally, yeah, I think with Les Ferdinand, you would put a QPR cap on him, or a shirt even, if you were going to have a bust. Now, Letitia, would be Southampton. Now, Gary McAllister, oh, had to, again, most of his, you know, it was part Leeds, part, Liverpool, I probably would say that you put Coventry, maybe for Dion Dublin you say Coventry again, but with Dwight York, 
in the popular imagination, would people remember him for his spell at United, where it was three or four really good years, but actually when he was at his peak, probably as a player, was when he was at Villa. And that's the thing, the point is, is that with Coventry and Wimbledon, they didn't somehow accidentally end up in the Premier League in 1992. You've got their FA Cup winning in 88 that would be you know, forgotten. Their Cup winning, you know, Coventry's beating Spurs in 87, Liverpool losing to Wimbledon in 88, all would kind of not really exist. And you know, Norwich's great performances in 92-93... Would just be a random season. It wouldn't be linked to the history of Norwich, where you know they're successful in winning the League Cup in the eighties. You know that fantastic um, Ipswich team that got promoted and finished fifth and you know, qualified for for the UEFA Cup. That great was was because it, it was such a surprise, and yet at the same time, the the their style and the history of of Ipswich. That team, you know, in the early 2000s has just as much link to the great Ipswich teams in the early 1960s under Alf Ramsey. You know, the principles were still the same. That it becomes far more interesting when you look at the, the totality of the history rather than to break it up into sort of sections even. And by not having a voting process, by not going through all these players, if you're just going to arbitrarily put your your opening two candidates, they're going to be obvious. It's probably one of them has got to be Alan Shearer. Maybe the other one might be Eric Cantona, it might be Thierry Henry, but it's all going to be players we already knew were great. It's not a surprise that Alan Shearer would end up in the Premier League Hall of Fame. Not a difficult one. You know, it... What it then begs is the the key question. Do you have a big hall or do you have an inner circle hall of fame? Now, by inner circle hall of fame, that means let's say you that you're going to have... You say the first 30 years, we're going to have 100 players. So in other words, an average of three players per year that you've had the Premier League. So in other words, it becomes... Yeah, massively high bar. Only the best. So yes, Thierry Henry gets there. But Emil Heskey doesn't. And the problem that becomes is, is that it becomes a bit of a listicle. It just becomes somewhat obvious who is the top 100 players. We've Those lists have been done by magazines, newspapers. It, it's not something that is going to particularly learn much about it. We all have seen the montages on Marie, we've all seen the montages of Alan Shearer, we all know their stories. And with stratification, as it gets as it carries on, is going to be more and more top six centric. So if you just and the problem then when you have a, a small one is that whether you get in or not becomes far more negative. Yes, it's a great achievement for you when you're inducted but actually, if you say someone who is absolutely borderline, so let's say Didier Drogba, let's say we're not 100% sure he is absolutely an inner circle, top 10 striker of all time in the Premier League Hall of Fame, it becomes far more difficult because you end up in a debate spending more time knocking Didier Drogba 
than you necessarily do sitting there and taking his achievements, you know, for what they are, which was he had some amazing seasons. He was a force of nature when he was at his best, and he played a huge role in Chelsea being great. But maybe he falls a little bit short that he only really had three or four really good seasons. You know, a couple of his seasons were a bit inconsistent. But in the end, it then ends up with, you know, Tottenham fans and Arsenal fans shouting at Chelsea fans and Chelsea. It becomes far more argumentative, which really isn't the spirit necessarily of actually celebrating these players. But if you then create a big haul, the downside is it dilutes the honour. It becomes... You know, it becomes a long service medal than it does a mark of outstanding accomplishment. So solid accumulators. Emil Heskey gets into the big hall because eventually, by playing X number of years, he got an 80, 90, 100 goals. But was he ever really, outside of a couple of seasons at Liverpool, was he ever really a brilliant player? Probably not. And it just... And it discriminates against those with short careers and peaks. You know, if you have a situation where, let's say, you have a rule where minimum service time of six seasons, because you want to get keep the bar high, is that you put Emil Heskey in, but you knock Gareth Bale out, despite Gareth Bale probably being a better, more interesting player than Emil Heskey, who for a lot of years was plodding about to no great effect with Villa, Birmingham... Wigan, even a couple of years at Leicester, didn't he? He flattered to deceive more often than not. What the? Because you're not having a vote, because the Premier League is arbitrarily saying we're going to just basically give it the medals out. So you're not giving it to the journalists. So the journalists, like in the Hall of Fame for baseball, aren't arguing out, aren't telling you the stories. You know, one of the things that the Hall of Fame is brilliant should be brilliant at is shedding light on forgotten players and teams in an interesting manner. So in other words, I'm talking about the 92-93 Norwich team. So, and this is where I really want to sort of take it, is that you've, take, I'm going to take Chris Sutton, John Hartson, Dion Dublin, and Stan Collymore, and say, well, who should we then put into the, a Hall of Fame? Let's say we're going to have a big Hall of Fame. Which ones do you put in? I don't think you can put all four of them in. I don't think you can put Connie Moore before, you know, before it gets ridiculous. Because what we're trying to do is you're trying to not only tell the story of the Premier League in terms of its players and you know, the tactical shifts and what, play, what football used to be like. You know, so in other words, a kid walking around this if you're going to create this museum, to understand you know, what strikers were like in the 90s. And also a way of you know, celebrating that Norwich team, celebrating some of the teams, you know, like your Wimbledons. The thing is, you can't put you know, Jason Dodd and Francis Benali into the Premier League Hall of Fame. They were good players, but you know neither of them got anywhere particularly close to international level. They were just solid pros who gave their best and kept Southampton in the league for a few years. When you take the look at the Norwich team, really, again, it was Chris Sutton. But would you be putting him there more for his Blackburn spell? I mean, the, the interesting thing, looking back on Chris Sutton's 
career, which I didn't really... In my mind, I just saw him as being a solid backup striker. And, you know, he was a good foil for um, Alan Shearer and did a fairly good job after Shearer left, kind of took a bit more of the goal-scoring burden on. And then his career kind of, you know, really petered out. You know, he had that horrible spell at Chelsea, 28 appearances, one goal after being signed for £10 million. He then went out to Scotland for a few years, banged in some goals, you know, and made a kind of a short, you know, return to English football after that. But at that point, he was pretty much done. And yet, I didn't realise until you actually look at the, the stats that actually his 93-94 season, he got 25 goals in 41 appearances. That's an incredible season. I mean, especially for a Norwich team, the season before had been the one where they'd finished third. Yeah, the, the team had dropped off a bit, but... That was a, a very impressive season, and you know, even 94-95, he got 15 goals in 40 appearances. But the one the thing that you have with Chris Sutton is just that it was far more peaks and troughs. In other words, you know, there was a probably his peak would you'd have to say was maybe 96 to, to 98 for Blackburn when he got 29 goals and 60 appearances, when he kind of took on a lot of the responsibility for goal scoring after Shearer went to Blackburn. Sorry, went to Newcastle. And that the sort of 93, 94, that 25 goal season, I think that was just that was a career year. That was just when everything went right. And that generally, other than these sort of peak four or five seasons, the rest of his seasons are Less than 10 goals. And I suppose in some respects you can say that, you know, he won the title with Blackburn. He got his one cap for England, and that was 11 minutes against Cameroon in 1997 off the bench. And that he had a career season. He had a, a sort of peak of four to five years where he was, I'd say, probably borderline top 10, you know, and he had an all-round skill set. Yes, he could lead the line on his own for a struggling team and be the main goal scorer. But he was also in '94 when he, you know, he was able to you know, work brilliantly well with Alan Shearer and not just chipping in four or five goals. He was getting into double figures. But when he was bad, as a couple of seasons really, where he didn't get many goals at all, there wasn't a underlying consistency which is what you get when you look at, let's say, Dion Dublin. So in the end, um, with Chris Sutton, you end up with 255 appearances, 83 goals. So, so 0.32 goals per game. Now you take Dion Dublin, and his numbers are 312 appearances, 111 goals, and so that's 0.35. But the thing is, is that Dion Dublin is your classic accumulator. More often than not, he was in the 12 to 13 goals per season. So round about 25 to 30 appearances, sometimes a few few more. But you know, he got a season of 10, 12, 11, 13, 13. Only once did he have one season over 14 goals. He had another season where he had 14 goals. So... Let's say his great season was 36 appearance, 18 goals. So that's one in two. That's a pretty good standard. You know, he was the joint top goal scorer in the Premier League that year. But 
Uh, he got his four England caps, no goals. Uh, and you also had to factor in that you know, he failed at Manchester United when you know you joined from Cambridge as a young, talented player. Didn't get much of a chance at Man United in those great kind of early 90s teams. Dropped down to Coventry for a few years. Then went to Villa. At Villa, pretty good, you know. He was a fairly regular goal scorer, played in some good Villa teams, but he was more of a solid, a solid, reliable striker that would give you X number of goals. He wasn't the most gifted player. He was good in the air, he had a powerful shot. His link-up play was pretty good, but you know he, he wasn't a particularly thrilling player at the best of times. He was kind of an old-school forward in that regards, that you would... You'd have to pair up with someone quick, someone who had a bit more about him. Let's say Darren Huckabee or you know Benito Carboni. Those sort of, you know, he'd get flick-ons and all the rest of it. So you'd have to say that Dublin's numbers are better, played more international football. But at the same time, he never came close to having the Chris Sutton se- you know, he- season of 25 goals. But... Dublin would argue that he spent all of those years in the Premier League. He didn't spend his peak years up in Scotland, which is a much lower level. Which then sort of neatly brings in John Hartson. So, John Hartson is an interesting one. I mean, when I was thinking about this, when I was first planning out this podcast, I had the impression that Sutton was kind of a complimentary it's a complimentary striker who you know was great at you know flick ons and you know link up play worked brilliantly well with you know Shearer and wasn't much of a goal scorer and in my mind from my memory Hartson was like a you know, a volume goal scorer. And actually when you come to look at the numbers it's Hartson didn't score as many goals as I imagined. I, I thought he'd had a 20-goal season. I mean, his overall numbers, so you've got 154 appearances, 55 goals, so that's uh, 0.35, which is identical, basically, to Dion Dublin, and just a hair above Chris Sutton. And if you compare, and for the most part, Hartson and Sutton's spells at um, Celtic both overlapped. Um, Sutton got 130 appearances, 63 goals. Hartson was 146 and 88. So I think it's clear that Hartson was more successful in Scotland. Um, it was more of a volume goal scorer in Scotland than than Chris Sutton was. And with John Hartson, you have the international career where he scored 14 goals and 51 caps for Wales. And some of those Welsh teams he was playing for were pretty useless, to be completely honest with you. And yet, again, with John Hartson, his career is interesting. So, you know, he starts off at Luton and does pretty well when Luton was still in the Division 1. And he gets a big money move, you know, when he's... You know, just on the end of his teens, £2 million to Arsenal. It was an old-school kind of sign. It was young, got a bit of pace, bit of power, bit of bulk. You know, it was a, sort of the signings that people used to make. You know, it was quite a bit of money, but it wasn't, you know, earth-shattering. 
and it was a sort of they could see that at some point he was going to be a replacement for you know Alan Smith that he might link up well with Ian Wright and it was an old school British transfer and obviously what happens is is that within sort of a year of joining Arsenal you know he makes a sub appearance in the cup winners cup final the Naeem game and you know he got a little bit of playing time overall his Arsenal career is uh, 54 appearances 14 goals I think quite a few of them were off the bench but then Arsene Wenger arrives on the scene and obviously John Hartson was not an Arsene Wenger player and I think it's the thing is with Chris Sutton at Chelsea, it was failure. He was a ten million pound striker. They sold him for six million to Celtic, and they were delighted to get rid of him, even if it was at a, a you know, quite a substantial loss. But you know, he was supposed to be at his peak, and it failed. It was a monumental failure, whereby at Arsenal he was competing from day one with, you know, Ian Wright. Dennis Burkamp, eventually Nicholas and Nelka. There was a, sh- you know, he was a young. It was his first run in the Premier League, and eventually a manager who was never really going to believe in him. So then he went and took a, you know, move to West Ham. Had a couple of really good seasons at West Ham, but never quite hit twenty goals. But it wasn't the greatest West Ham team of all time. You know, eventually moves on to Wimbledon and then Coventry. And finally, after a couple of relegations, you know, where he, for sort of about maybe 18 months, he was a gun for hire. He was someone you bought for six million, six, seven million pounds in January because you needed to survive and you were the type of guy that could get goals in a struggling outfit. You know, his numbers for Coventry and for Wimbledon in those short periods of time was pretty good. I mean, I suppose the the sliding door moment of John Hartson's career was when um, he was at Wimbledon and Spurs had a £7 million bid accepted. It was one of those signings that was, that speaking as a Spurs fan, horrified you, but at the same time, your first, it, my first response was, no, this guy will be awful, this is a, you know, too much money, too old, it's just not the signing we want, he's not going to take us to the next level. But there was that bit in the back of your head that thought, well, he has scored goals everywhere he's gone. And in the end, that the transfer broke down, He there was something in the medicals that Tottenham didn't like. And there was a period of time in the late 90s where there was about three or four transfers. The Probably the two most famous were uh, Andy Hinchcliffe and John Hartson, where basically the Spurs medical people looked it over and failed the medical and the transfers broke down. And it's fascinatingly interesting that both of those players ended up having extended periods careers after these failed medicals and didn't have many injury problems whatsoever, and they were all fairly fairly durable. But it was almost this sense um, that the medical team almost were stopping Spurs managers from making these sort of bad decisions on decent players, but players who were probably a bit too old and too much money, and really betrayed how 
the decision making at the club and the managers was fundamentally flawed. But I think that that emotion that I had when he when the news came through on the radio that, that the, this deal had been agreed, and I think this is one of the things about Hartson's career is that are you, are we punishing him for playing for weaker teams for the struggling Wimbledon, the struggling West Ham, Coventry? When actually everywhere he went, he he got goals, you know, slightly higher rate than than Sutton, identical rate to Dion Dublin. Dion Dublin played more games, but then Dion Dublin had the advantage of you know effectively his whole career was in the Premier League, whereby, and the thing is with, is that you look at it. Hartson's Celtic numbers are better than Sutton's by a you know a clear margin. You know, out of all of the players, because I'm going to bring in Stan Collymore as a, another example. His was the international career that was the most successful. It wasn't a cup of coffee. It was an extended period of time, you know, where he got goals. And this is the. I think in the end, it's going to be a. A personal decision. So if we're going to, you know, for a paper exercise, say you, you have to pick one out of the four players. So I've gone through three. I've given you a breakdown of their careers. And I'm going to finish with Stan Collymore. So we're going to say one of them gets into, you know, the Man on the Clapham Omnibus Premier League Hall of Fame. Who would you vote for? Now, Stan Collymore, out of all of these players has the weakest resume. His, he was almost like a shooting star. But actually, out of all of those players, he's the one who probably had the most talent. To do a bit of research for this yesterday, I looked, because I remember that, and this is another one of these sort of great lost teams of the Premier League era, but I don't think that the, the way how the Hall of Fame is currently the way how it looks like it's going to be constituted is going to, you know, forget. Is the 94-95 Nottingham Forest team under Frank Clark. So he'd taken over from, you know, Brian Clough. He'd got them promoted from Division 1. And they took the Premier League by storm, finished third. Ended up the next season having a bit of a run in the UEFA Cup and got absolutely annihilated on uh, national TV by... Jurgen Klinsmann inspired Bayern Munich, but their European run was there. Yeah, they played some great stuff, and it was a really good Bayern Munich team that took them apart. The City ground in the second leg, and Collymore Moore in that ninety four ninety five season, thirty seven appearances, twenty two goals. And he, and watching some of the footage from that, I remember him being pretty good. It's just the pace, the close control, the skill. The ability to just, un with unerring accuracy, to score from sort of 25, 30, 35 yards. And it wasn't just power. It wasn't like Tony Yeboah, where he was just absolutely leathering the ball, as you know, almost aiming at the crossbar, because the ball would be hit so hard, it would always bounce in and down from the crossbar and in. He was placing them from 30 35 yards into the top corner without huge amounts of power, without place, with just pure placement. 
And when you look through that 94-95 Nottingham Forest team, again, there isn't anyone that would immediately jump out as a Premier League Hall of Fame inductee. Probably outside of Collymore, your best bet would be Stuart Pearce. Now, if you were just dealing with the Premier League and Stuart Pearce, you're effectively dealing with only maybe five or six seasons of which... You know, you had that spell at West Ham where he was pretty much about league average. A couple of few games from Man City and two or three, you know, four, maybe four or five seasons at Nottingham Forest. But most of those seasons, Nottingham Forest were fairly poor. A couple of seasons they got relegated and he was good. I mean, I think his whole collective career. He was, I put him in the English Football Hall of Fame, but the Premier League, it's not the strongest case. You know, if you're, you know, having to start at, you know, 92 and finish at 2000, there was more, you know, he spent four or five years, three or four years outside of the Premier League. And a couple of those seasons he was in the Premier League were parts of teams that got relegated, you know, and a couple of those Forest teams were really bad. Mm. So what you end up with Colin Moore is he had this amazing season at Nottingham Forest. And he'd had a great season in the first division taking them up. Now Colin Moore had made a couple of appearances earlier. When, you know, he'd come through the Crystal Palace uh, youth system. And at the time they had you know, Wright, Mark Bright, Chris Armstrong. And he'd you know, never quite... You know, Broke, you know, got much of an opportunity. I think he had a couple of appearances in sort of 92, 93. So he dropped down to Bristol City, done really well there, and then been picked up by Nottingham Forest, who were at the, who'd been relegated. He had this amazing season, made three appearances for England, and then got this massive move to Liverpool, 8.5 million. It's a British transfer record at the time. And he has two years with Liverpool. The first year was... Yeah, pretty good. Thirty-one appearances, fourteen goals. The second season, ninety-six, ninety-seven, thirty appearances, twelve goals. So really, you've got this period where ninety-eight appearances, forty-eight goals. You obviously can't really bring in his Division One stats, and he then goes to Villa again, another big money signing, seven million pounds. That was a club record at the time for for Villa, and. At that point, the decline phase was set in. It, he had moments at Villa where he was good, but you know his off-field problems were starting to come to the fore in terms of his mental health, in terms of his behaviour. And then you get the the period of time where he just you saw flashes. So he goes to Leicester City and scores a wonder hat trick. You know, a couple of other decent games, but he then gets let go because they go to La Manga and in the hotel bar he lets off a fire extinguisher. You know, he goes to Bradford and at this point in time he was you know, starting to carry a little bit of extra weight and he scores an overhead kick against a really good Leeds team on his debut on front of the Sky television cameras. And in the end that fell apart as well. And you've got the, in his personal life, you have the moment where... It's the night before the start of France 98 and he's in a bar with his girlfriend at the time, Eureka Johnson, and he ends up 
there was a moment of domestic violence and as far as I'm aware he hit her and this is where it becomes I suppose with Stan Collymore is that out of all of these players he had the most talent and he was the most visually arresting in terms of he could run at players. He could hold the ball up. He could finish. He had close control. He There was so much that he could do. And I didn't realise this, but really he was the Premier League's lost great striker. And there's something very tragic about the fact that he was sort of 27. So really should have been at the absolute peak of his career. And yet he's in France just on the... You know, just before the World Cup starts, but he's not there as a player. He's in a bar with the rest of us, the rest of the people that have you know had to save up for months and months and months to finally go to a World Cup. And you know, what do you do on your first night? You go to the bar and you get absolutely sloshed. And that's the saddest thing about. And this is where the Stan Collymore story is so complicated because. Do you sit there and say that he pissed it all away and that, you know, he made bad decisions, you know, and he did this horrible, you know, horrible incident of domestic violence? Is he basically a rogue in that regard? So do you sit there and almost debit from his account that you shouldn't put him in the Hall of Fame because he wasted that time? Or do you sit there on the other side and say, actually, to have achieved what he did, to have had that short period of time where he actually scored some fantastic goals even some of the goals he was scoring for Liverpool were fantastic finishes it, the, the criticism of Stan Collymore at Liverpool wasn't that he lacked the talent that he just wasn't able to you know, keep it together long enough in other words he would tend to perform better at Anfield in terms of the crowd and see, that seemed to be what inspired him and that when he went away from home and this was a fairly flaky Liverpool team under, you know, Roy Evans that there would be that drop off that he didn't quite work hard enough but then you can also say, well t- to have had all the demons that he had and then still to have been able to play such brilliant football could that not be in some way, shape or form a, a triumph? It but caveated with the abhorrence towards violence that you know is within all of us. You know, no one wants to see domestic violence or to see people that effectively get away with it. So to conclude, what I would say about all four of these players is that their stories deserve to be told. They deserve to be told with some passion that lets the reader, lets the listener know that they weren't just players who also served, that they in, they enlivened our existence as football fans. You know, they gave us fantastic moments. Dion Dublin was a great guy, on and off the field. You know, he played, made such an important role as a figurehead for so many years for Coventry City in keeping them in the Premier League. You know, Chris Sutton had moments, seasons, where he was fantastic. And in many ways, his story is has an element of what if. Had he found the right club? In other words, Norwich City wasn't able to keep that 
producing results like they did for that magical you know couple of year period where they had the great league season and the great European run. And really at Blackburn, you know, that by the when he had his best run at Blackburn was when Blackburn were falling apart. You know, and his best moment of his career, he was really a a support striker. But over his whole career, he wasn't just a big guy that you holds the ball up and gets a handful of goals he really had more talent and I think his his international career you know that one cap but also the fact that you know the reason his England career ended was that he refused to play a B game for um, Glenn Hoddle and how he you know spent you know a decent amount of his peak up in Scotland and it was always that debate at the time was whether he should get into the England squad because he had been scoring you know, relatively freely up in Scotland. But what did that mean? Is it, you know, in other words, was it just basically because Celtic were really good at the time and were you know, smashing the league every single year? In other words, was he just a flat track bully? And there is just that part of his career that will always be kind of, I suppose, slightly underrated. You know, we forget that he had that 93-94 fantastic season for Norwich. We forget that he's, you know, good years for Blackburn. There was always something overshadowing. In other words, when he did really well at Celtic, it's because it he was in Scotland, there was question marks. You know, he never really got to show at international level, you know, because of his truculence. Much in the same way, that it's similar with John Hartson. That he never, you know, he, his career became far more nomadic until he really settled down at Celtic for sort of five, six years. You know, the fact that he battled back and survived cancer. But even with John Hartson, there was always this sense of had he gone to the right club and had the opportunity to, you know, be around a solid, a, you know, mid table to upper mid table team, what could he have done? When he was good, he was, you know, he could score, he had great in the air, he could hold the ball up, he had a powerful shot, he had a little bit of pace about him. And there's even almost an, an element of sadness in Dion Dublin's career, in other words, when he was at close to his peak, when he was like 29, 30, and he got left out of the 98 World Cup squad by Glenn Hoddle for, you know, Les Ferdinand. It's, and thus, thus never, you know, was able to, you know, had the opportunity at a major international tournament. And there's this sense that, you know, having played for, you know, struggling Coventry teams, I think it's a similar thing that, you know, Hartson gets kind of punished for, is that you know, actually there is something to be said for, you know, putting those sort of numbers up every single year in a struggling team. The thing is, is that I suppose I prefer Dion Dublin's you know, career to Kevin Phillips. Although Kevin Phillips had that amazing 30-goal season, that was about it in terms of his you know, top-level career in the Premier League. You know, any professional athlete, there's always that you know, possibility that you could just have that one career year where just everything clicks. And it's some ways underrated as an attribute, the ability to do it every single year. So really, I think, from my personal opinion, I don't think any of these players are quite Hall of Fame, you know, I think level. I would say they're more Hall of Very Good. But my point is, is that 
all of these players deserved their stories to be told one more time. Because what they do better than any medal around Alan Shearer's you know, neck is actually tells us the story of English football and tells us the story of the Premier League. Of you know, when Norwich had an amazing season, when Nottingham Forest had an amazing season, when Coventry were able to stay up year after year. <laughs> you know, when target men used to rule the Premier League. And that's the tragedy of the Premier League Hall of Fame as it's currently currently constituted. It's n all of these stories will be lost. Thank you for listening.